Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we have, for the second time in his sermon, on, uh, in his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressing prayer. Uh, if, if you've been with us, we have been in a series looking at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been slowly going through it, and again, this is the second time that we're seeing Jesus address. Prayer. The first time that we saw him address prayer uh, is in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, he was confronting how we use prayer often as a means for self-glorification, for self-centeredness. But what Jesus shows us there is that prayer ought to be God-centered, God-glorifying, which is how the Lord teaches us to pray. But now, for the second time in this passage, we have Jesus... Um, giving us a different perspective on prayer. You know, now as we begin to near the end of this sermon series, we've actually only got a couple of weeks left. Actually, next week is actually our final week in this prayer. Jesus is wanting to leave us once again specific thoughts on how we ought to think about prayer. Except this time, he doesn't just focus on the self-centered use of prayer that we can sometimes fall into, but this time he focuses our attention on the boldness of our prayers, the faith that is within our prayers. And between Jesus's uh, teaching last time on uh, the Lord's Prayer and what he now provides us, he really does give us a very robust understanding of prayer. So let's see what Jesus wants to show us through, this, through these lenses, through the boldness of prayer, the necessity of prayer, and then finally, the confidence for prayer. Okay. So first, the boldness of prayer. Uh, let's begin by just kind of putting what we just heard in context. So last week, if you were with us, Jesus was confronting how we treat one another, how we approach one another. And the reason why is because our natural instinct is to approach others often with hypocritical judgment. We often are more willing to critique and cr condemn others with harsh judgment and view ourselves as less worthy of judgment. We tend to be gracious with ourselves and ungracious with others. But Jesus challenges us in the way that we approach one another by reminding us what it takes for us to be viewed as truly righteous by God the Father. Namely, what we need is the perfection of Jesus. And as a result, Jesus wants that grace that we have been given to inform how we then go about interacting with other people. So that's the context. But now he takes us from how we ought to approach our, our brothers and sisters, as it were, 
to now telling us how we ought to approach our Father in heaven. Because when we remember the gracious love of God toward us, it changes how we ought to approach him with our desires, with our needs, with our requests, with our prayer. But for those who remember the grace of God through Jesus, Jesus tells us, ask and you will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you for anyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. I mean, do you hear in the way that Jesus is describing prayer, do you hear the, the boldness and the persistence in how Jesus is asking us to pray? He's asking us to ask and to seek and to knock, to come boldly and persistent. Don't stop with your requests. This is the kind of prayer Jesus is encouraging in, a, in, encouraging in us. So the question, of course, is why does Jesus encourage such boldness? Well, in reflecting uh, on prayer, uh, John Calvin, the famous reformer, he once said this. He said that nothing is better to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we will be heard. Meaning, when we know that God is going to hear us, that drums up in us a desire to be bold in our prayers. In other words, we can know that we will be heard, and so as a result, we don't have to be timid in the ways that we pray. God desires to hear our bold prayers. And Jesus is reminding us that because of God's grace in Christ, we have the kind of relationship with the Father that we are allowed to be persistent in Christ. We are his children. He is our Father. And as a result, we have every right to approach him in this way. You know, when I think about um, persistent requests, there's probably no one in my life uh, that is more persistent, less fearful about being persistent than my younger daughter. Um, because she loves me, because she knows I love her and I will listen to her request, no matter how outlandish the request, no matter how inconvenient the time of her request, she will ask it, and with absolute confidence. Why? Because she's my daughter, and she knows she has that kind of access to me. Years ago, uh, Tim Keller, who I will shamelessly reference right now, uh, once gave this analogy that's always stuck with me, that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And that we have that kind of access to God the Father. So Jesus begins by telling us to ask boldly, to be persistent, to beat on the door for a response. Why? Because by the grace of God, you are children of God, and you can do so. But he also challenges us to consider the relationship even further by giving us a little bit of a parable of sorts that we see uh, starting in verse 9. Because we will be bold in our requests if we are also convinced that the one to whom we are requesting is actually committed to our good. And so Jesus shows us the extent to which God the Father is very trustworthy, and he does so by simply saying this in verse 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a steak? If you then 
Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So with that in mind, knowing that Jesus is calling us to be bold and knowing that God the Father is committed to giving you good things, how bold are we when we pray? How persistent are we in our prayers? Because I can guarantee that we are probably, more than likely, not nearly bold enough, not nearly persistent enough in the ways that we pray. But that leaves us with a really challenging proposition, one that I, and I know many of you have felt very palpably over the years. Specifically, what is the point of prayer if God already knows my needs? Why do I need to be persistent in my prayer if God already knows? Or what about the fact that I have prayed very bold, persistent prayers, but my prayers were not answered? In other words, I have asked, but I was not given. I sought, but I was, it was not found. I knocked, but the door stayed shut. Well, if we look really carefully at Jesus' words, Jesus actually gives us the answers to those questions too, which is, leads us to not just that there needs to be a boldness of prayer, but also to take a look at the necessity of prayer. Uh, in his work on this passage, uh, theologian John Stott addresses some of the most common retorts that many people have to the notion of prayer, and specifically to the notion of bold prayer. I decided that his thinking on this was so good that I was just going just gonna to give it to you as Stott puts it. I was trying to reword it, and I was like, this is pointless. I'm just going to give you what he says. But he gives three common uh, issues that many people end up uh, uh, facing when they're thinking about Jesus's words here, when they're seriously trying to think of Jesus' words. And this is how he puts it. He says, one of the problems, he says, might be that some people find prayer to be unseemly or inappropriate. I'll explain to you what I mean by that in one second. The second thing that he says is that others might find prayer unnecessary. And then thirdly, he says that some might find it unproductive. And I want to spend a minute addressing each of those because each of them, I think, actually will be uh, very, we will recognize them. That this idea that prayer ought to be uh, bold, I think these are the kinds of things that make us not want to be bold, not want to be persistent in our prayer. So how then do we reconcile bold prayer with Jesus' promises that we will be given good things? Let's consider Stott's concerns. The first thing that Stott uh, again said is that for some, prayer seems unseemly or inappropriate, meaning it seems as though such prayers, bold prayers, assume that either God needs to be made aware of our needs or that we need to in some way bully God into answering our prayers. And so as a result, prayer just seems unseemly. I mean, why in the world, if God is truly all-powerful, all-knowing, does he need me to ask for anything? I mean, does he not already know? And as a result, why would he not just give me what I need? I mean, do I as a father wait for my children to ask for their needs before I give them anything? I mean, this is the kind of tension that we run into. Well, to ask that question is to actually have a wrong assumption about who prayer is for. Prayer is not for God's benefit. 
I mean, Jesus did tell us earlier in his sermon that the Father already knows what we need. He does not need convincing about whether or not to give us what we need. Rather, as Stop puts it, the question is not whether he is ready to give, but rather whether we are ready to receive. See, prayer is for our sake, not God's. Prayer is God's way of encouraging us to again trust him, to recognize our need for him, and to lead us humbly to come to him as our father. And to not come to him in prayer does reveal a self-sufficiency that implicitly, if not explicitly, says, God, I don't need you. I'm good on my own. So God is, God's uh, desire for us to pray is actually his kindness drawing us back to himself every time we pray. So it's not inappropriate. It's incredibly formative. The second thing that Stott addresses is that sometimes, for some, prayer just seems completely unnecessary. Meaning, when we look out into the world, there seem to be many people who have everything, but they never give a second thought to prayer. We all could find people or identify people who are wealthy or successful or beautiful or happy or healthy, who have friends and family, yet they could not care less about going before God boldly. And yet God seems to be just blessing them fine. So why bother praying? Well, we need to make a bit of a distinction. We need to stop and consider the kinds of gifts the good gifts that God gives specifically to his children. Because God gives good gifts to all of his creation. This is the notion of, of common grace, the, the idea that God gives grace, extends grace to, to everyone to a certain degree. And so there will be plenty of people out there who are going to experience measures of happiness, success, and even health because God is good, even to his fallen creation. But those gifts... The gifts we often associate with prosperity are not unique gifts that he provides to his children. The unique gifts only given to his children are gifts of redemption. The unique gifts of God to his children are forgiveness and a peace that surpasses all understanding, the hope of creation restored and redeemed, the joy of a day when there will be no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. It's the gift of a Savior who lays down his life for our good, the gift of the Spirit who dwells within us, the same Spirit whose power raised Christ from the dead. These are the good gifts of God that he gives only to his children. And all of those good gifts require us to go before him in prayer. So don't look at the temporal successes of health of those who do not trust God. Rather, look to the one and trust in the one who provides eternal gifts to his children. That said, we should also, though, come to God boldly, even for tangible needs that we possess. Remember, we need to combine what Jesus is doing here with what Jesus did previously in the Lord's Prayer. And there, Jesus tells us to pray for daily bread. It does not get much more tangible than that. But when we pray for that bread, our prayer is not just for food, but even when we pray for bread, it's an acknowledgement that all of our 
bread. All of our provisions come from God. And again, that shapes us to trust him more. The third thing, final thing that Stott notes is that for others, we hesitate to pray, especially bold prayers, because prayer just seems unproductive. Specifically, what do we do when our prayers are not answered? What are we to do when it seems like prayer just doesn't work? What are we to do when it seems like God has in some way failed us? Well, look again at our, at our passage. Look again at verse 9. Jesus said, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, God is committed to giving us what we need. Good gifts. Committed to giving his children good gifts. But what if we ask for something that is not good or part of our ultimate good? What if we find ourselves not asking God for bread and fish? What if at times we, ask, we find ourselves asking God for a stone and a snake? I mean, should God just then give us the stone and the snake because we requested it? I mean, what if we don't realize that what we've asked for is actually something that would work against our ultimate good? And God not granting us that request is actually exactly what we needed. You know, as I say that, I recognize that there are many who have prayed prayers, even bold prayers, that seem obvious that God should answer. I know that pain well, too. The pain of experiencing some kind of sorrow, some kind of death, some kind of injustice, some kind of fear, only to feel like God was absent. And that even though I prayed, he did not answer my prayer in the way I desired him to answer it. What good? In those moments so often, the question that rings in our head is what good could possibly come from the pain that God allowed when he could have kept me from experiencing that pain? What do we do with that tension? Well, there's a couple things I'd say to that. First, I would say that many of us here, though uh, we have been through certain experiences that have been difficult, and though those difficulties are certainly different amongst us, there are many here that I know can certainly testify to how good God is by using the pain that we experienced in profound ways. Many of us here that have maybe walked with the Lord for a while know what it is to have experienced sorrow, wishing God had kept us from that sorrow only years later to see what God was doing, shaping us, using that sorrow for good. There are many of you here in hindsight that have found gratitude that God kept you from certain things, allowed certain hardships and certain struggles into your life because as a result, you've now been able to see glimpses of his redemption at work in your life. We can see that now, how committed he was, how good he was to us then. But the second thing I would say 
is that if God is God, then could he not have reasons beyond what we could possibly understand for what he does allow? If his ways are only limited to our conceptions of what is good, he's not God. He's just a figment of our imagination. If we assume that God is not able to take every situation, every heartache, every fear, every form of suffering and turn it to good, then we, if we don't believe that that's true, then we are serving a small God. But if we look at our circumstances and assume prayer is unproductive because we can't imagine another way for God to act in those circumstances, then I wonder if we at those moments assume ourselves superior in knowledge and wisdom than God. A belief that prayer is unproductive is a rejection of God as God and an assumption that we are greater than he. And I would challenge us just to say, if we have any humility to know that we are limited in our abilities to imagine what God is able to do, that humility will be what drives us again to bold prayers because I don't know what God's going to do, but I trust that he's committed to giving his children the good gifts that they need. Even if at times suffering, hardship, sorrow is part of what he's doing. That said, what ought to then give us that kind of confidence to trust him. That's a lot of confidence to put in him, to believe that even the worst parts of life in some way can be used for good. How do we build that kind of confidence to trust him in this way? Brings me to my last point, the confidence for prayer. You know, in the two times that Jesus uh, teaches us about prayer, both times he focuses our attention on how we ought to approach God. How does Jesus tell us to approach God in prayer? Well, he does not tell us in either one of his teachings on prayer to approach God as our mighty God or our creator or our God of great strength or our God of matchless holiness and glory. He doesn't tell us to approach God in those kinds of ways. All of those things are good and true. We could absolutely pray to God in those terms. But Jesus... How does he focus, us, focus our attention? What does he ask us to call God as we approach? He calls us to seek God as our Father. I need to bring us back to this point because it holds the key to the confidence that we can have in our prayer. Whether he is calling us to pray extraordinary prayers like, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven and earth, or if he's calling us to pray practical prayers for food or bold and persistent prayers where he calls us to ask and to seek and to knock. The confidence of our approach is rooted in God as a nurturing, loving parent. As a result, our confidence in prayer is rooted in the reality, again, that we are his children children that he loves, children that he sees and knows and is committed to. So like a child with a good, loving, gracious, merciful parent, there will be, of course, respect and honor and reverence, but there will also be an unparalleled 
confidence to beat on that door at three o'clock in the morning, to express our hurt and our anger and our disappointment, to pray prayers with every confidence that his wisdom and his power will be used for our good. But such confidence comes really when we realize how we were made his children. And I do feel like I would be remiss to not address why we are his children. Because there's a misconception, I think, about how we ought to view God as a father, specifically how the Bible talks about and speaks about us as his children. Because there are many who might say that we're all God's children. Everyone is God's children. Children, yes, God's child. And in one sense, that might be true, right? As a result of God being the creator of all things, in some sense, we are his children. But that's not how the Bible talks about God as father. The Bible doesn't talk about God the father in some kind of generic way as though he's the father of everyone. Instead, God as father in the Bible is a very specific designation to those who have been adopted into his family. God is the father of his people, not everyone. And one becomes an adopted child of God, ultimately through the work of Jesus. Galatians 4 tells us that Jesus came that we might receive adoption. Romans 8 tells us that we've received God's spirit when we were adopted as his own children. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were predestined for, for adoption through Jesus Christ. In Christ, the Son of God, we are welcomed as children of God. And as a result of this adoption, Hebrews 4 tells us that because of Jesus and because we have been made children of God by faith in Jesus, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, our confidence in prayer, our boldness to approach the throne of grace is rooted in the reality that Jesus, our elder brother, accomplished access for us. This is what makes us children of God. This is what allows us to come boldly before God, Jesus, in his life of perfect submission and obedience, in his death, which was a perfect sacrifice for us, in his resurrection, which was a perfect victory over sin and death for us, for those who trust in him, for those that trust in that work, that is what Jesus has done to pave the way to open the door to God's gracious throne room. And I encourage you with just simply this, that if we find ourselves doubting whether or not God is for our good, if we find ourselves find this, thinking about prayer and thinking about it as being unseemly or unproductive or it's not something that seems worth my time, I'd encourage us to stop and to look upon Jesus because when we see Jesus and what he's accomplished for us, we begin to then recognize the extent to which God is for our good. We start to recognize what has been done so that we might approach God the Father with confidence. He's a compassionate, loving God who desires 
to use his might and his power and his wisdom for your good. And the reason Jesus calls us to approach God the Father as Father and not as a mighty king is not because God is not a mighty king, but because that mighty king is a compassionate parent toward you. And it's in Jesus that we find that ultimately to be true. So let's look upon Jesus to remember what he has accomplished for us and let that shape us in such a way that it makes us bold, persistent in our prayers, trusting that God hears and that he is ultimately committed to giving us what we need for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, you are just that. You are a father. You are a good father. You are a father that is committed to our good, even when we are not committed to our good. You're a father who will give us what we need, give us bread and fish. You're a father that will withhold to us when we ask for things that are not for our good. God, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to look upon you as that good father? And as a result, would you help us by your spirit to make us bold in the way that we pray? And ultimately, would you help us keep our eyes fixed on our elder brother, Jesus, the one who accomplishes the adoption that makes us your children? May that ultimately be where our confidence rests in the work of our Savior. And as a result, make us a prayerful people, God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.